Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let me tell you about a story I read about today from several years ago, 37 years ago to be exact. Um, it happened on Easter Sunday, 1976 in West Palm Beach, Florida. There was a lady by the name of Bertha Adams who passed away at the age of 71 years old. And when they heard about her death or got suspicious about her death and they went into her home, they were immediately taken aback by the junk. Now the cause of her death was nothing out of the ordinary as far as foul play involved. It was malnutrition. Now went into the house, they described it as a pig pen, the biggest mess you could imagine, a Uh, An investigator that had been working the crime scene for years said that he had never seen anywhere that was as bad as that. And the neighbors knew of Miss Bertha as the lady that would come to their door and beg for food. Said that her clothing always looked like it had been bought at a Salvation Army or picked up at a place like that. And so everyone around tried to help with food and to give her things and assumed that she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. Well, as they were going through the stuff there, they found in a special spot two keys to what looked like safe deposit boxes. So they went to those safe deposit boxes, and the first one they opened, and stuff started spilling out, and it looked like just papers. But then they realized that they were stock certificates, bonds, securities, 700 shares of AT&T stock. And then in the back was a stack of cash. That measured up to $200,000. They went to the other safe deposit box and opened it. And inside of it, there were no stock certificates. There were no notes or bonds or securities. Just cash. $600,000. All told, her worth in those two boxes was well over a million dollars. And yet she died of malnutrition. Now where are we going with that? Matthew chapter 6. We're going somewhere maybe. Verse 19. Don't collect for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be a slave of two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot be slaves of both God and money. Chapter 6 in this Sermon on the Mount, the second in the three chapters, begins to describe our relationship with the Lord directly. And the first few parts of it talk about us um, and our relationship with the Lord and that there are certain things that ought to be between us and the Lord first and foremost. And that includes our prayer life, that includes um, our fasting, our depriving ourselves to get closer to the Lord. It includes other areas that he'll mention, the almsgiving, the helping people, offerings. 
And when we move into chapter 6, verse 19, we see that relationship with the Lord take a little different turn. What we begin to see is the Lord not focus so much on a kind of our inner disciplines, but on our outward expression and particularly things that could trip us up in our walk with the Lord. Now, in traditional Christianity, there is this understanding that we struggle with three basic realities that pull us away from the Lord. The world, the flesh, and Flip Wilson's favorite, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are three distinct things that all sometimes work together, but pull us away from the Lord's leading. And the flesh is our own sin nature and our own body and all that kind of goes into that, our desires and those kind of things. The devil is the enemy of God. As we talked about on Sunday, he has an enemy, but he has no rival. And so he's not as powerful as God, but God has allowed him to be very powerful and to have some reign. And then the world is kind of the system in which we live, the worldview around us, the entire society of which we are a part. And starting in verse 19, Jesus is specifically going to talk about the two dangers we can come into when we talk about the world. And the first one is that we would absolutely love it. And the second one, which we're talking about next week, is that we would be worried about it all the time. But this week he says, I want you to get around your mind or to get into your mind that you can't love the world and follow God. You can't love it. You can't want it. You can't desire it. You can't think like it. You can't be like it. You can't be of the world and follow the Lord. The reason for that is important. What does he use to talk about that? What is this passage mainly about? Chapter 6, verse 19 to where I read. What is it mainly about? Money. Right? You know who's not scared to talk about money? Jesus. Talks about it all the time. If you just preached Jesus' sermon, people would go nuts that I was talking about money too much. Because he talks about it all the time, money, possessions. And in this passage, he talks about it in an interesting way. He talks about treasure and storing up treasure. Then at the end, he talks about you can't serve both God and mammon. And there's this weird thing in the middle about an eye. And you're like, how does the eye relate to the money? But it does. And we'll talk about that. But here's what I think is interesting about that. That if we're not careful, this is one of those passages of Scripture, especially the Wednesday night crowd, will immediately say, well, we don't deal with that, so we can kind of move on. Specifically, what's interesting is this idea that how we view the world and how we view possessions and how we view material things and how we view things that we want and can't have or want and obtain makes a huge difference in how we follow the Lord. You see that little part about the eye in the middle, right? If your eye is clear, then everything's clear. If your eye is dark, everything's dark. The idea there is how you view life and how you view the stuff we have makes a major impact on how we live our lives for the Lord. In Luke 11, Jesus uses the same illustration, that the eye is the lamp of the body, and that as your eye is dark, your whole body is dark. What's interesting is in Luke 11, again, he talks about money. It's connected. 
When he gets to Luke 12, he talks again about the eye and the lamp. And so the idea is that somehow this concept, you know, when I was growing up and you heard about keep your eyes pure, keep your eyes pure, you know what they were talking about to us in the youth group about keeping our eyes pure? What you watch and listen to. Moral purity. Purity in dating life. Purity in relationships. They weren't talking about money. But when Jesus uses it, it's in the midst of money. This is what he's, he's kind of saying here. That materialism or an inordinate desire or dependence on money or, or material things has this peculiar effect of blinding you spiritually. Of distorting the way you see things. It has power over the way you see everything. It even has power to blind you to your own materialism. I read this week uh, about a pastor, Tim Keller, that I follow in New York. That um, They did a luncheon series. Once a month at his church in New York City, they did a luncheon. And at that luncheon, they talked about the seven deadly sins. You remember the seven deadly sins? Right? Gas leap. That's how I remember it. Gluttony, avarice, sloth. Lust, envy, something else. Pride. David, you know? Am I bringing back bad memories for you? Okay, just making sure. Not with the seven sins, just the schooling. But he was doing one every week, okay? And when they got to the one on greed, his wife said, did you publicize that? He said, yeah, publicized greed. She said, well, I can almost guarantee you that'll be our least attended one. He said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, nobody thinks they struggle with that, so nobody's going to come. He said, you know what happened? Least attended session of the seven was greed. Everybody wanted to hear about everything else, but they're like, I got that one. I'm okay. Here's the thing. Most of the time, Greed goes under our radar in our own lives. Greed is different than other sins. Jesus says it's an eye sin. It darkens us spiritually. Jesus didn't say to anybody, watch out, you might be committing adultery. You know why? Because if you're committing adultery, guess what you know you're doing? Committing adultery, right? You don't say, oh, goodness, that's not my wife. Right? It doesn't happen that way. But Jesus says, watch out. You might be greedy. It hides itself. It blinds you in a way that other sins don't. You know what's interesting? As a pastor, I've had lots of people come to me and talk to me about different things they're struggling with. I, I cannot remember. I've been pastoring almost 12 years. Within like two weeks, it'll be 12 years. Nobody's ever come to me and said, well, I am just dealing with greed. And I've had just about everything else. But nobody's ever said, I am just dealing with materialism. It's in my life everywhere. It's that sin that kind of goes undetected. Most of us don't even consider the possibility that it might be. You know why? Because we can always think of somebody that's got more than us. Well, my cousin, now he, he's got an issue with greed. Or that neighbor down the street, or my son's neighbor. I mean, you can think of rich people. You... If I ask you right now, list me ten people that are richer than you, you would not have a hard time coming up with that list. You know them, right? 
So you think, that's not a problem of mine. Not all those people, maybe they've got it, but it's not me. And here's the thing. You know one of the worst symptoms of a sin is? Is when you think I can't have it. When you're most vulnerable. It's not a problem of mine. Sometimes materialism shows up in different ways. Sometimes it's the way you choose a job. So you choose a job you don't love. Not the one you're really good at. Not the one that you would have taken if you tried. Not the one that helps other people. Not the one that advances the kingdom. But it's the one that pays the bills. Keeps you from asking hard questions about your lifestyle. One of the problems is the kinds of people you come in contact with. Sometimes your friends are making ten times what you are, five times what you are. 50 times, you look around and you think, well, their cars are better than mine, and their house is bigger than mine, and they've got nicer stuff, and their TV's 65-inch, I've only got a 50-inch. And you start to compare yourself around, and you think, I don't have an issue with that. And as a result, your eyes spiritually have gone blind, and you don't realize that you're not seeing what you need to see. So you don't ask the questions, do I really need to spend as much money on this? Do I need to be putting this much money into my apartment? Do I need to be spending this much money on clothes? Do I really need to make that payment? Do I really need to buy this knowing that payments are coming? You don't say, are there ways I could be giving more of this to the church or to help other people or to go towards neighbors? Are there ways I could be radically generous if I made that change? You know what's interesting is the church used to do a lot more. I'm talking about the history, not our church, not even the American church, but kind of the historical church. Used to do a lot more with this issue and being accountable to one another. In fact, uh, in 1635, there was a guy named Robert Kane that was a member of the First Congregational Church of Boston, and he was disciplined by the church for making a 6% profit on the things he sold. Because the church had agreed they would only make 4%. And he was going behind people's back and making 6%, so they disciplined him for greed. Now, can you imagine an opening your books up like that to everybody in the church? Your response to that ought to tell you what you kind of feel about money. Ooh, they can't look at my books. They can't have access to that. By consensus, they decided on these rules as a church, and when Robert Cain went away, they decided, I wasn't going to do anything. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Jesus' point about greed is that money has the power to keep you from asking the questions that you really need to ask. I mean, are there any of us that really could stand here and say, honestly, I am doing completely fine with material things? I couldn't get rid of anything. I couldn't give away more money. I couldn't simplify my life to have it to where I could have more to give. It's astonishing that we live in the place, in the time, and in the era we live in. And we somehow don't think we might have an issue with materialism. Money has this power. And it's right there in the scripture. Why? It says in verse 21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I told you before, I read that verse wrongly for many, many years. I used to read that verse instead of where your treasure is, your heart will be. I used to read it where your heart is, there your treasure will be. And that's not what it says. It says that wherever you're accumulating stuff, your heart will automatically go. He means 
that the place where your heart rests is revealed by the where your money goes. In some ways, money for us is a way to gain a couple of things, which include significance and security. He looks at this crowd and he says, listen, when you're thinking about how you relate to the Lord, one of the most important areas you need to take care of is how you think about, deal with, handle financial and possessions and materials and stuff in general. Uh, One of Eli's favorite words lately has been the word stuff. So what did you do today? Stuff. Did y'all have fun last night? Yeah, yeah. What did you do? Stuff. I said, in fact, at the supper table tonight, he had a friend spend the night. I said, did y'all have fun? Did y'all play a lot today? Yeah. What did you do? Just stuff. I said, we are about to ban that word from your vocabulary. It will no longer be allowed in our household. All right? In general, Americans have a stuff problem. We got too much stuff. When we get too much stuff, we got to buy a bigger place to put our stuff so we can fill more stuff. And when we get too much in that, we go buy and rent a place that we can handle our stuff because our stuff's going too much. We got a garage full of stuff right now we're trying to sell. You know what happens? We keep getting it out there thinking we're going to do a garage sale and I just keep taking it to Goodwill because I don't want to do a garage sale. Right? It's easier. That's right. Put it in and go. We've got a consignment sale coming in a couple weeks here. Some of it's going there. But I'll be glad to get some stuff gone. And sometimes we look at our kids and we say, Boy, don't you realize you've got enough stuff? Now, my kids would never say it because they're better behaved with that, but sometimes I think they want to look at me and say, don't you think you've got enough stuff? I love the show Storage Wars. Have you ever watched Storage Wars? What store? Ben, tell us what Storage Wars is. Yeah, you know storage units like down here? This one down here, did you see it just got a brand new sign, new name right down here, right? And they have these all over the country. Think about this. People that refuse to pay the money or move out the stuff they have in a storage unit is so much that there is a business of people that all they do is go around and buy other people's stuff that they no longer want or will pay for. So there's this reality show called Storage Wars and it follows these people. Now it's a reality show, so you mean it's not really realistic, right? I mean, there are rumors that they're putting like prized Ming vases into places, all right? But they go in and they just look at a room and they decide, I'm going to buy it. And what I keep thinking is, who would just leave all this stuff? And then I look at my garage and think, I would. We got too much. Some people use money for approval. Some people use it for status or for significance. I like to look at other people and say, you know what, you're not economically as good as we are. You're below me. You don't have to be very well off to have that. You just look for whoever is below you. So you watch the news at night and you think, whew, I'm glad I'm better off than they are. Isn't it good to be here instead of there? And then you see another story and you're like, well, that's your like to be them instead of me. Your life is centered around, your idea is centered around, your significance is centered around how much you have. We feel like we're better economically than somebody else. We feel like we're better. We feel like we're higher caliber socioeconomically. We feel like we're higher caliber. It's economic. It's automatic. But for some people, it's not just about I feel secure. I mean, I feel um, significant. It's I feel secure. 
This is what one pastor said. If you're not giving away your money in eye-popping proportions, if you find it difficult, if you're not so radically generous that the world's amazed at Christians, and most of us aren't, the only answer for that is that your significance or your security is pushed into your concept of money. But if I have money, I can control the world. I can take care of myself. I can have a safety net. I can have a golden parachute. I can make sure everything's okay. So what's the solution for that? Well, Jesus gives it here. He gives two alternatives. He says you can either store stuff on earth or you can store stuff on heaven. What I think is interesting there is the word treasure there is used. It's kind of a loose translation, but it gave the significance of something that was very, very important to you. And the truth is, as believers, as non-believers, as human beings in general, we are treasure seekers. Almost every generation that has ever lived have told stories about mysterious treasures that they want to go find. When I was growing up, I grew up in a little subdivision that was Rose Drive and Cooley Drive on the outskirts of Dyersburg. And there were woods all around us. And all around the neighborhood, there was treasure hidden in those woods. You went this way and that way. Somebody had seen it. They had just gotten scared by an animal, so they didn't really get it. And so my childhood was, we went, we would go into the woods and we would take, you know, go two or three at a time and we're looking for this thing. Think about Hollywood. How many movies are based on the premise of people seeking treasure? You, you name some. Tell me some. National Treasure, one and two, right? Got those out of the way. Indiana Jones, right? The one, two, three, and the terrible fourth one, right? Anything else? Y'all aren't, aren't thinking tonight, y'all are. Mad, 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 mad world, right? Or even movies about mysterious objects that people have, right? One of my favorite books that came into movies that is still uh, Peter Jackson's going to make into the longest set of movies ever existent is the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is about a ring that they're searching for and destroying. The issue, Jesus says, is not seeking treasure. We all seek treasure. We all have this desire. I mean, think about how many pirate movies. Pirates are just looking for treasure. Or X marks the spot. The issue is not the treasure. The issue is what kind of treasure we're seeking and where we're storing it. Right? Does he say seeking treasure is bad here? No, he just says seeking treasure on earth why is heaven a better alternative for treasure than the earth just look at what he says why is it better can't be stolen so security is an issue so where the lord is we'll get to that miss eleanor you're jumping ahead of the game a little bit it won't rust you have to think now we got all kinds of things to not let things rust right and rust still happens i mean cars are made to be rust resistant, you got to think in their day, how they didn't have paper money. They had coins, metals. And what was the worst thing that could happen? St- 
stuff could rust or get, they, they didn't have pure metals either. They didn't have the refinery process that we kind of have. So rust was a major deal. So security or protection. There's also this concept of longevity, right? What lasts longer, this current earth or God's eternal dwelling place? Right? I mean, that's kind of a ridiculous question, but it's there. Jesus is reminding them here that this is not our home. The illustration I come back to over and over again in my mind, I think I've used it on a Sunday morning here, but it's just so, it just makes it clear for me how ridiculous some of the things we do is. And it's this illustration of, imagine um, if you went on vacation for four or five days. What's the nicest place you've ever stayed? Y'all are with it tonight. Looking at me like I'm, what's that? Sawgrass down there at the tea, down at uh, Florida. Did you play that? Uh, we're gonna have a little conversation here, Alan and I about that. Laid around the pool. All right. Susan and I got married 15 years ago tomorrow. Tomorrow's our 15 year wedding anniversary. And on our honeymoon, we went to Hawaii and planned to go every five years since. And we've been to Hawaii once. That was on our honeymoon. You know, you get there and you're like, we've got to do this in our five year. I've told you all this, but then our 10 year, we were going on 10 year. Monumental. We're going on our 10 year. And I was sitting listening to the Wiggles in concert at the Municipal Auditorium in Nashville on my 10th anniversary. It's not the same. So we go to this, but we call this, the lady that still helps us book Brazil trips. We call her and we say, listen, I'm just looking for, I said, I'm looking for something kind of out of the way. We really don't want to be in the hustle and bustle. She goes, there's this new place that's opened up. And it's called Ihelani. Sure, sounds good. They're going to give you a special deal because y'all are going to be one of the first. It's just opened like a month. And they're trying to get people there and all that kind of stuff. So we get there. It's unbelievable. I mean, it was the first place I ever walked in. And it was all remote control, air conditioner, lights, all that. We're looking out over a man-made lagoon out into the Pacific Ocean. This beautiful pool. We go down to the pool and everybody's talking about the French Riviera. And they're talking about... The Mediterranean, and, and I'm, I said, Susan, we are the poorest people that are here, and it's not even close, all right? I mean, we were two kids that had just graduated college, and we're moving to a 600-square-foot apartment in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, all right? Now imagine, as nice as that is, going into a place like that or to any hotel and looking around at the decor and saying, we're going to be here four or five days, and I just don't like the way those drapes look. I think there's some new curtains that need to be in here. And that bedspread, no telling who slept on that, we're just going to go buy a new one. So you go out to the store, and you buy all new drapes and all new bedspreads, and you buy new pillows, and you buy new chairs, and you go take it and you move into your hotel room. Now what's ridiculous about that? It's not ours, right? And how long are you going to be there? Not long. And yet, how do we treat a world in which it is a microscopic part of our eternal lives to be a part of? You see, for us, this earth currently is like that five-night stay in a hotel compared to the eternity we're going to spend with the Lord. And yet, we do everything we can to adorn this place as well as we can for a short time that we're here. 
We have to remember that the systems of this world are broken. There are times when we forget that, but it doesn't make it less real. I heard about a college professor that had a couple of women at a Christian university, and they decided that they were going to, um, they decided they were supposed to go into missions, and they went back to their parents. They'd become Christians in college and decided they needed to do missions. And they go back to their parents and they say, we want to be missionaries. And each of the parents almost independently said to them, now, dear, that is wonderful. You've had a great religious experience. We're glad for that. But you need some security in life before you just traipse off over all over the world being a missionary. It's fine if you do that mission work. But before you go, we want you to have a master's degree. So you've got a fallback plan and maybe work a couple of years to raise some money so that you'll be okay. Women came back to the professor, and his name was Dr. Leach, and said, what, what do we say about that? And he said, this is what I would tell your parents. Tell them we're on a little ball of rock spinning through space, and it's called Earth. And who knows if we're going to run into something, but even if we don't, someday under each one of us is going to open a trap door, and everybody's going to fall off. At the end of your life, a trap door will open up underneath you. You will fall off the little ball of rock, and underneath will be the everlasting arms or nothing at all, and you think a master's degree is going to give you some security. I don't know if that's what the girl said to the parents, but it's true, right? I heard about an older couple that when the stock market crashed in 2008, somebody called to make sure they were okay. And they were laughing. And they said, why are you laughing? And the wife, who they were in their 80s, she said, well, we're poor again. Don't have anything. But who cares? We're not going to live much longer anyways. The truth is, that's where we all are. Jesus says, don't invest in things here. Invest your life in the things of heaven. So what are the things from this world that you can invest in that are eternal? People. Right? Relationships. Knowledge. Growth, your relationship with the Lord, your enjoyment and worship of Him. Invest your life in those things. You've got to have the right storehouse if you're going to conquer this. And then you've also got to have the right sovereign. I mentioned the book Lord of the Rings earlier. It's about a quest to destroy this ring. And in the book, some of you have seen the movie, Whoever holds the ring begins to call it a special name, which is my precious. And what the ring does, that in order to have it, you have to give up your entire life. Jesus is saying at the center of everyone's soul is something that they hold on as precious. But whatever that is, if you're not careful, you are enslaved to it. Once your soul treasures something, a relationship, a possession, a career, a status, a look, you'll pay any price to keep it. You'll do anything to get it or to get it back because it's the only thing that you care about. The Bible says that every treasure that you have will insist you die to purchase it. But the amazing thing is what Jesus offers us is something greater where it doesn't require us to die for him, but that he has already died for us. In Isaiah 53, it tells us the prophecy. And then when he saw the results of his suffering, he was satisfied. 
1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You're God's purchased possession. That means that we are His treasure. We know He treasures us. We know He cares about us. That and that alone is what should set us free from our desire for stuff. Three questions that you can kind of ask or three things that can help you see how you deal with this money issue. And first of all, it's how do you react to people that have more than you? If you resent them, if you're disdainful of them, if you say, look at their money, look at their homes, look at their stuff, if you feel superior to them because they have more money and you're being better stewards of it, if you dislike them, if they um, somehow still have power over you, then it shows that you don't handle this issue very well. Second question is, how do you deal with people that have less than you? You respect them, treat them well, care for them. The third thing is this. The real sign in your life that money no longer has any kind of control over you is you get really generous. With whatever you have, you begin to be extremely, radically generous. You know where that is in this story? Jesus says, put your stuff in the stuff in heaven, not on earth. And he does this weird thing about the eye. The word, therefore, if your eye is good, has various meanings. But one of the most prevalent meanings there is if your eye is generous. And the other word, if your eye is evil or bad, has a connotation of stingy. So what Jesus is basically saying, and you have to understand, we think of the eye, we think of the instrument that allows us to see when they thought of the eye they thought of how you viewed everything in life and everything that entered you and it says if your life is generous if you have a generous eye versus a stingy eye then your whole body will be filled with life jesus is saying here it's not just about storing stuff and accumulating treasure and god being over you, not just mammon. What he's saying is the way that is demonstrated in our lives is the way that we give. You're looking for opportunities. You're looking at your friends, at your neighbors, at your church, at the poor. You're looking at your city and you're wondering, how can I give more away? One of the greatest examples in my life of somebody that just kind of did this is my dad. It's the thing that Susan and I talk about still sometimes about the legacy that he has left us for giving and generosity. My dad um, grew up the son of uh, uh, an alcoholic father and a, a mother who none of them, they didn't make very much money, they didn't do a whole lot. And my dad never, gra- never graduated from college and just started working as a factory, uh, actually was a butcher, and a, an assistant butcher at a meat shop, and then went to driving a truck, and then went to fixing trucks in a factory. Never made a whole lot of money. But my dad would give away anything he could. He just did. Um, and one of the things that I always loved about my dad and my mom is that we, we used to, and I've, said, I've mentioned this, but we used to have these huge 4th of July parties, 60, 70 people in our house for 4th of July. Dad would cook pork shoulder all night long, and we'd have it for lunch on the 4th of July. Just Amazing. He had a rib cooker. He would hang the ribs and cook those for hours at a time. And in our house on any given 4th of July would be people from the entire socioeconomic spectrum. In Dyersburg, it was a small town, so there was one radiologist. He was at our house for 4th of July. 
There was one superintendent. He was at our house for 4th of July. But then Dad had a friend named Pee Wee that was his assistant at the factory, and he was sitting next to the superintendent at our house on 4th of July. And the radiologist and the superintendent and the business owner and the car owner dealership, the guys that came and ate that could have paid for everything there, never paid a penny other than what they brought. Because my mom and dad, who were two people that worked in a factory, wanted to provide that for everybody. And sometimes I look back and, you know, as a kid, you never know kind of where they are financially, all that stuff. I mean, mom and dad I didn't sit down and go over the books with me. But we were never well off, but we never lacked for anything. And we could have had a bigger house and we could have had more stuff. But the legacy he gave me of being someone who didn't care about that and was just generous. I mean, dad drove beat up trucks all the time. That's what he drove. I remember getting picked up at school one day in a truck that you could see the road as we were driving down the road. He, he would get these trucks and then he would work on them for two months and then sell them and then buy a next step up from it. But it still wasn't great. When we got the El Camino, it was the greatest day of our lives. And it wasn't a new El Camino. They don't make those new. Right? We loved it. And then he got an old Ford Bronco. Man, we are stepping up. We, we were used to literally... <laughs> When I got in the car that day, Dad said, uh, you might want to put your feet on the side. Don't <laughs> Like, are we going to have to do the Flintstones in this thing? We got to... He didn't care. Now, my brother, who was in high school at the time, he cared. He was like, Dad, just leave the thing running. I'll jump in and you pull away, all right? And Jesus says, listen, if you're not in an attitude of a generous spirit where this stuff doesn't matter to you, then you need to make sure that your eyes are seeing the world properly. Don't store stuff up here. Store it in heaven. Make sure your eyes aren't so focused on what you want or need or have that you can't see the spiritual realities of the world because you can't serve both God and stuff. Let's pray.